That's what leaders do. Leaders go first. Leaders are vulnerable and they go first. They don't say, well, you be vulnerable, then I'll do it. No, no. I'm going to show you I'm going to be vulnerable and then they do it and then you get the example. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Tom Peters, and it's one of my personal favorites, and that is, leaders don't create followers, they create more leaders. Our guest today, Dove Barron, is one of the world's top speakers and authorities on leadership. He is the founder of Full Monty Leadership and the best-selling author of several books, including his most recent, Fiercely Loyal. Dove is also uh, the host of the Leadership and Loyalty Podcast, which is one of the world's top business podcasts. Dove, welcome. Uh, excited to have you join us today on the uh, Elevate podcast. Cheers, Bob. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to uh, adding value to you, to the audience, and doing whatever I can to serve. All right. We're going to hold you to that. Good. <laughs> Most people have a long career before they even begin keynote speaking, but you, you establish yourself as a, as a gifted speaker early in your career. How, how did you get your start speaking? <laughs> Uh, gifted, uh, that might be a bit debatable. Um, well, as you know, there's a funny story with that. My speaking career started unintentionally. Um, I'd had businesses, um, and ran businesses since I was a kid. I had businesses in the UK and Canada and Australia. My business in Australia had nothing to do with this industry. And I had a customer who would come in and he and I would have these wonderful philosophical conversations. And then one day he came in and he said, I'd like for you to come and speak to my managers. He owned a national menswear company. I go, we're having a national managers meeting. I'd love for you to come speak. And I'm like, speak? What are you talking about? Speak. Because so I want you to come speak. I said, about what? And he goes, it doesn't matter. You can speak about whatever you want. I'm like, come on. And how old were you? I was 24, <laughs> 24, 25 years old. I was brilliant. <laughs> well, at least I thought it was at 24, which may have been the, the curse of being 24. I got over that. Don't worry. But um, so he said, uh, I, want you to, I want you to come speak. I'm like, about what? He goes, anything you want. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me, right? He's like, no. I said, listen, I'm not a speaker, and you're not even going to give me someone to speak about. He goes, no. Like, How long for? An hour. Oh, my God. Are you crazy? I can't do an hour. I could, you know, I was like, oh, I was just freaking out. He managed to talk me into half an hour. Now an hour would be a warm-up, but that's nonetheless. Okay, fine. So I agree to do this half hour. The challenge is that he says I have one condition. I'm like, okay, here we go. What is it? Now, you should know this is the early 80s. And in the <laughs> early 80s, I had been a bodybuilder since I was 19. So I'm now five, six years into my bodybuilding. And so as a young 20-something-year-old, into bodybuilding, it's very important that people know you're a bodybuilder at that age. <laughs> what that means is I wore t-shirts that were way too tight because it was very important that everybody knew I had muscles. Now I can't, my wife argues with me about wearing long sleeves because I'm always covered up. But back then it was really important that everybody knew about that. And on that particular day when he was in my place, I was wearing a skin tight t-shirt, ripped jeans, I had designer stubble, and you should know that my hair uh, back in those days was down to my chest, and my hair is naturally very dark, ringlet curls. So, you know, a bit like um, Louis Thirteenth hair, you know, this, yeah. this wild curly hair, and it's untamed. So it's not in a ponytail, and it just looks like a, a nest, right? So I've got this long hair, and I've got these earrings in that are so big, you can swing parrots off them. He goes, I don't want you to wear a suit. I want you to wear what you're wearing. I'm like, why? Why do you want me to come out? He says, it doesn't matter. I want you to come out. I said, Steve, you know I have suits. You make my suits. He made my bespoke suits. So when I wasn't dressed in the way that I just described, I would wear nice suits. Anyway, I agreed. I show up at the gig. I get there. And I wait at the door as instructed and put my head in the door so that he, can, he and everybody else can see me. And as I look down this long boardroom table, Everybody at the table looks at me and they're giving me this nod, like this to the side nod, 
which is bugger off, get out of here, you're in the wrong place. But I just stayed, and then eventually Steve said, please welcome our speaker, Dove Barron. I come up to the front of the table, and honestly, you know, there was almost like there was a clunk as chins hit the desk. Like, what? Who the hell is this guy? This is, remember, now this is the early 80s, where racism in, the, in, in Australia was a big issue with the Aboriginal native people, and they were trying to find some rights and all the rest of it. And I said, put your hand, I, nothing planned, by the way. I said, put your hand up if you, uh, if you consider yourself a racist. Well, as you can imagine, nobody put their hand up. I said, okay, fair enough. Put your hand up if you would judge somebody by the color of their skin or the way they look in any way, shape, or form. Nobody puts their hand up. And I said, you're a bunch of freaking liars. Every single one of you judged me by the way that I look. You decided how intelligent I was. You decided what my financial situation was. You decided whether I was worth bothering with by the way that I look. And every one of you was dead wrong because I am your customer. That's how I know. Steve, you make my suits. But if I'd have walked into your store, you would have lost a great customer. Now, at that point, I think, oh, my God, I've, you know, I've spoken out of turn. I've shit the bed here. This, it's all over. Right? I look over at Steve, and he's got a huge grin on his face. Obviously, he knew what he was doing. Was that your plan B speech or your plan A speech? That was my no plan speech. <laughs> I had no plan. I didn't know. Because he said, speak about whatever you want. So I, I didn't know. I just, it was totally intuitive. And I always say that if the story finished there, I would be a hero of authentic speaking. But the story doesn't end there because I'm not a hero. I'm a schmuck. I'm a slow learner. Nice guy, but a bit of a slow learner sometimes. And so what that is, is that, you know, Steve talked to me about it. He was very happy. He was excited about it. Two, three weeks go by. He comes by. He goes, Alistair would like you to come speak for his people. Alistair owned another national clothing company. I was like, cool, exciting. Now I'm in, right? Now I've got the bug. Okay, I can do this. But like an idiot, I decided to research speakers because I knew nothing about speaking. I'd been following psychology. I knew all kinds of cool stuff, but I'd never... You know, I didn't know what speakers really did, so I did the research. And speakers, I discovered, looked like Jim Rohn and Zig Ziglar and those kinds of guys, and they wore uniform. And the uniform was blue suit, white shirt, red tie, short hair, patent shoes, clean-shaven, or a mustache. So what did I do? I got a haircut. I shaved off my designer stubble and got this thing on my lip that looked like a dead animal. Uh... <laughs> I <laughs> uh, got the blue suit, white shirt, red tie, and the patent leather shoes, showed up for the second presentation, figured what I said the first time went down really well, and of course, it went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> you know, again, slow learner. It only took me about four years to work out what the hell went wrong. <laughs> I had traded my authenticity for approval. That is the biggest mistake anybody can make. So you, you set up a, a perfect t-ball for me for something I wanted to get into a little earlier, but that is fine. Recently, when we were doing a, a leadership training for some of our upcoming managers, we talked a little bit about the sort of level five of leadership and going from being productive uh, individual to a team member to a manager and then moving to that four and five. I shared my own experience and I put up a picture of a patchwork quilt because I, th I think what happens is when a lot of us start managing or leading, we grab a bunch of best practices from other people that we see and we emulate and we try them on and some of them feel right and, and not right. But I actually, I think you actually have to do that for a year or two. I think some of the deeper leadership stuff would fall on deaf ears when you're just starting to get out because you kind of have to go through that process. So what does that look like in your mind for a, a lot of people? Are they, what does it take to move from things that they've seen from, and, and coaches in sports, you know, mess this up all the time. Like how many people have tried to go on and be Bill Belichick, which is just not, you know, it, it, it's impossible to be his character. What does it take for that, that transformation towards being comfortable with kind of authentic leadership? Well, you know, authentic leadership is a term that is thrown around now. But if you and I, Bob, if we, we went out to the mall or somewhere and we, we had a little clipboard and we asked 100 people, are you authentic? <laughs> How many of them are going to go, no? Of course, they're all going to say they're authentic. So you say to the person, are you a manager? Yes. Are you in a leadership position? Yes. 
are you authentic? Yes. So it's redundant. It becomes like, uh, well, I'm in a leadership position, and as far as I know, I'm authentic, so I'm an authentic leader. No, you're not, but you think you are, and I understand that. So here's the first thing we need to know. Managers and leaders are vastly different. Leaders lead people. Managers manage projects, and they get use the people to get the projects done. But leaders are actually integrating and interacting with individuals. That's number one. Number two, authenticity. Let's just look at that word for a moment and grasp it. Whatever you think authenticity is, I want you to think about what you think it is. I want you to write it down or just say it in your mind as you're listening to this podcast and go, okay, answer the question, what is authenticity? And I'm going to ask you, Bob, is that okay? What is authenticity? I've defaulted to using the Gandhi quote where I, I think authenticity is when what you think you say and you do are aligned. I would say that's integrity, but it's certainly a good answer. Okay. But I'll tell you what authenticity is. I want you to think about somebody that you are really tight friends with. Okay. Okay. Somebody is a very good friend. Now, let me ask you this question. Think about somebody who's an acquaintance. So you've got a really good friend and you've got an acquaintance. Yeah. The difference, you would say, well, this relationship is more authentic, the friend. And I would say, yeah. So what's the difference? And the answer is depth. Yeah. Authenticity is depth. That comes from vulnerability. It's depth. So an authentic leader has depth. Well, what is depth is the next question. And the answer is self-knowledge. If you are not willing to self-explore, if you're not willing to discover more about yourself, if you're not willing to ask yourself the hard questions, and I mean that, not some bullshit hard question that you made up or that you think is hard or it's the kind of thing you should be asking yourself, but genuinely a hard question, like here's one. What do you believe? Tell me something you believe. I'm going to ask you, Bob. What do you believe? What do I believe? Uh, Pick anything. I don't care what it is. It's all right. But it's a personal belief. I believe that you should treat people well. Okay. That's a vague, personal, something more personal. Oh, more personal. Yeah. I believe you should do what you say. Okay. Why? Because it's just the right thing to do. Bullshit. Man, I didn't know you were going to throw me on the spot here. It stands for- Of course I am. So this is why I want to do this. Yeah. And I'm doing this because not for, not, I mean, obviously, hopefully you get something out of it, Bob, but I want to do it for everybody else. Because this is what we do. If we go, oh, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to go to the surface. But that's not authenticity. Authenticity is to ask yourself the hard questions and not give yourself the easy answers. This is not soft lobs. So I believe that people should do what they say. Why? I think it's your personal brand and uh, it's your own integrity. Okay, great. Why does that matter? Now, I'm not going to ask you to keep answering this because this, we could turn this into a session, right? And, and this is how I work with my clients, and I help them to get really deep and true with themselves so they can find their maxims, their true deep, it's not values, it's below values, which are maxims, then ac- gives them access to their purpose. But when we take this down at the levels and the deeper and deeper levels, we start to see that actually we've not really self-explored. We've not really gone to the depths. And I'm certainly not saying you haven't done that, Bob. We're just not doing it here. I'm certain that you and I, if we had this conversation, you would get very deep with me. But this is the point of what I'm saying is that when we're looking at authentic leadership, the reason people are uncomfortable with it is because they're uncomfortable with going to the uncomfortable places with themselves. And the, the truth of the matter is that you want to be a great leader. That doesn't exist in your comfort zone. And I know that's a term that's thrown around. But listen, I'm telling you, The only way for you to become the leader you want to be is to embrace the vulnerability of looking like an idiot, the vulnerability of being willing to say the wrong thing. See, as a listener right now, here's what I want you to consider. I put Bob on the spot, and he was willing to go there. If he didn't have depth, he would have went, well, no, no, let's not do this here. We'll do it some other time. He did it. He went there. He had the courage. He led by example. That's what leaders do. Leaders go first. Leaders are vulnerable and they go first. They don't say, well, you be vulnerable, then I'll do it. No, no. I'm going to show you I'm going to be vulnerable and then they do it and then you get the example. So thank you for doing that, Bob. It's a great leadership principle that you just taught everybody who's listening. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? 
Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So where does the myth of this perfect, invulnerable leader come from? Or the one I think we see in <laughs> stories and books and, I, you know, the one that people are aspiring to be or trying to be. I don't know a lot of people who, I mean, there certainly there are, but who are saying, oh, I want to be that vulnerable person who who does is that they want to be the person who looks perfect on the on the exterior that that is revered. That's interesting because I'm finding the opposite actually. I'm finding in my work that great leaders really want to embrace their vulnerability. They want to understand how to be vulnerable. The truth of the matter is that my generation grew up with the idea and even Gen Xers grew up with the idea that we were supposed to be impenetrable, that we were supposed to be, never show vulnerability, never show the chink in your armor. But the truth of the matter is that that doesn't work. It doesn't endear people to us. It doesn't create loyalty. And again, back to the example I gave of somebody who is a trusted, loyal friend versus an acquaintance. If you want to look at those two people, let's say you've known them both for the same amount of time, the difference between the two, as you said, is vulnerability. So if you want to endear people to you, if you want them to become loyal to you, you have to go to vulnerability. But I also understand that you and I have been conditioned as leaders, that as a leader, you're supposed to know everything and that you are supposed to never show your weaknesses. Well, what we know is that doesn't work particularly for millennials anymore at all. They're not interested in that. In fact, they will never be loyal to you. They will walk away from you. I talked a lot about that in Fiercely Loyal that if you, the companies that are able to not only attract and develop but retain top talent are led by purpose-driven organizations with leaders who are willing to be vulnerable. Now, if you don't care about keeping your people, great. Then do, keep doing that perfect leader nonsense. You won't keep people. Well, it's interesting that you said that. I think there's an analogy in sports. Look, you work with people who are really good but want to be better, right? And, and think about sports. Olympic athletes work with coaches, but then there's a lot of mediocre leaders and a lot of mediocre athletes who, who don't think they need coaches when all the guys at the Olympics have two or three coaches. I, I, I find the same thing is true in businesses. The, the people with coaches who are, who are doing all this difficult stuff are already pretty good. The people without it, I think, have a false sense of their, uh, their level of uh, capability. You know, the best of the best, it doesn't matter what it is. So whether I'm working with people from Hollywood, whether I'm working with athletes, whether I'm working with CEOs or high-level entrepreneurs, the best of the best are always aspiring to be better. The analogy I like to give people is, let me ask you this question, and now he's back. But when Tiger Woods was at his top originally, do you know how many coaches he had? 
Oh, probably, probably had a, I probably had a swing coach, a distance coach. I mean, four. Very good. He had five. Five. He had five coaches, and he was the best in the world consistently for a very long time. Now let's hold on. Let's break this down. So, were any of his coaches better than him? Overall, no. Every one of them was better than him in an area. They could see what he couldn't see. He was smart enough to know that. Now, let me ask you the same question. Tiger Woods, same period of time. How many relationship coaches do you think he had? <laughs> Zero. Exactly. <laughs> if you want to learn how to be a world champion and how to just completely shit the bed on it, there's your answer. Because by not having a coach in that one area, he destroyed the other area where he was a world champion. He lost a billion, one with a B, billion dollars in sponsorship because he didn't have a relationship coach, because he didn't deal with his crap, because he didn't get his personal stuff out of the way, and it destroyed his professional stuff. And this is where I started out when I said that real leaders understand that the power of self-knowledge, you've got to go there. You might not want to go there. You might not be comfortable with going there, but you've got to go there. And if you go there, your entire game will get better. Very often, the leaders I'm working with will say to me, I, you know, it's so fascinating that my marriage is so much better. I'm doing so much better with my kids. My, my son came up and said this. He's never said that. My daughter came and she said this. She's never said that. My wife is telling me she's more in love with me, or my husband is telling me that she's, he's more in love with me than ever before. Why? Because leadership starts inside, not out. I have a pretty good sense of where you're, where you're, where you stand on this, but I, for the, for the people that still believe, uh, you know, do you, message to share for the people who, who are still operating the command and control playbook because it's yep. been handed down to them for business generations and generations when the army isn't even, or the military isn't even using command and control in the same way anymore. I mean, it, it seems like it doesn't work, but other people just don't, have another playbook or don't know what to do other than to say, listen to me because I'm your boss. <laughs> well, let's face it, depending on your generation, uh, your dad probably said, do this. And you said, why? And he said, because I said so. <laughs> yes. And if you look at leadership, leadership today is very simple. It's the same model as the Roman Empire. Now that's been gone and fallen. And if there is a Roman Empire now, it's called the Mafia. And it's still running command and control. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is that, as you said, even the military has moved away from it. I got to speak for the Air Force, and I was fascinated and loved that they broke my bias in that I suddenly realized they're not doing command and control. They're actually empowering, which is wonderful to see. However, you have to understand that command and control is still the default so somebody who's not a command and control person may find themselves in the role and then suddenly find, oh, they're doing that behavior because it's conditioning. And anything that's conditioning will take effort. It's a struggle. So you go, well, I don't know of another model. Well, talk to me. I'll give you an entirely different model. The leaders I work with work with an incredibly different model and have powerful results. You just don't have a model because you don't have a coach, a mentor, a guide who can walk you through another model. And you can't do a new model on your own. That's all there is to it. It's too hard. Yeah. And you, you talked about, I think for a lot of us, purpose comes from uh, an experience or somewhere close to, to pain and really digging in on your situation. You know, I know you had a, a situation yourself in 1990. I think right as your business was taking off, you had a free climbing accident in which you... Mm -hmm shattered your face and have major surgery. I'd love to hear about that experience and how it impacted your personal and leadership journey and, and what you do today. I want to start by saying that action is the currency of the brave. You've got to be willing to take action, but courage is subjective. And it's important for us to know that. The things that you might think that I do that are very courageous may be easy for me and vice versa. There may be things that you do that I think are very courageous that are easy for you. But on the morning of June 20th, 1990, I woke up feeling what was at that time, very familiar sense of both confidence and power. Uh, little did I know that by the afternoon, that same day, that confidence, that power would be crushed like a walnut being hit by a hammer. Looking back over my shoulder at around 120 feet high, 
the idea of doing that free climb looked pretty foolish. I reached for a rock that dislodged a bigger rock that hit me in the face and um, sent me hurtling down that 12 stories onto the rocks below where I was opened up. I mean, it was devastating. It cracked open my ego and I got to get a glimpse in that moment of the depth of despair. And, and I spent the next 18 months in a very dark, dark place. And people will often say that must have changed your life. But the truth is it didn't. It actually didn't. Um, we like to think that. We say, oh, well, you know, um, you had this massive heart attack or you had a diagnosis or, or you're, you, know, you went through a divorce. It must have changed you. And people will often say yes, but it's not true. You see, we're not changed in those moments. Those are called pivotal moments. Pivotal moments are important. They stop you in a track. They're supposed to stop you in your tracks. But what happens for most people, and certainly for me at that time, was that, that event embedded me deeper into my ego. It made me more resolved about being the way that I was. And when people would say, how are you doing? With my teeth wired closed, I would say, I'm coming back. I'm not going to be knocked down. I'm coming back. I mean, just so you understand, that was in June, in November of that same year, I went bungee jumping at 140 feet with my jaw wired closed. I mean, I, I was going to be unstoppable. I was a leader. I'd been a boxer. I'd been a martial artist. I was born in a ghetto. You know, I was not going to be beaten down until I was, until I fully faced my own pain, stepped into the darkness as... Uh, Joseph Campbell said, the treasure you're looking for is in the cave you refuse to enter. I entered that dark cave, went into a very dark depression, and that was when I decided I had to find my purpose. You see, we go looking for our purpose in our passion, in our joy, but that's not where your passion is held, where your purpose is held, rather. Your purpose is not held in your passion. Your purpose is held in your pain. It's in the place you do not want to look that you will find the diamond you're searching for. And what was the diamond? My purpose. Yeah. Finding my purpose. And, what, and which is what? So I do a lot of work, of, as you know, do a lot of work privately with the high-level individuals and with companies. And we help companies to elicit their core purpose so they can be purpose-driven. And oftentimes what they think is their purpose is actually a mission statement. And so we have to go look at their purpose. When we do that purpose work for individuals, we say there are two purposes. There's your inner purpose and your outer purpose. The inner purpose is, is for you. Yeah. And other people probably won't even understand it. And there's an outer purpose that you can share with the world because it's what you're here to do in the world. So my external purpose is I am here to facilitate other human beings finding their purpose so that they can leave live deeply fulfilling lives, and create a legacy of positive impact and empowerment. That's the external purpose. Now, that, of course, translates to companies, assisting companies to find their purpose so that they can be productive and impactful in the, into their world and leave a mark on the world, a legacy that goes beyond finances or even beyond their company or their name. And it's powerful and it's magnificent. Uh, my inner purpose is different than that because my inner purpose is about me. And when you write your, when you actually get to your purpose, and this is a guideline for everybody, because a lot of people think they found their purpose, what they found is their mission statement. And I said, well, how do you feel when you say this purpose? And they go, I feel really good. And I go, it's probably not your purpose then. Yeah. And they go, what do you mean? Well, shouldn't it feel good? And I said, yeah, but it should feel something else. And they go, well, what is it? Emotion. I said, well, I'll just tell you this. Oh yeah. It's got to be emotional. It's got to be deeply emotional, but I'll tell you what the emotion is. When I think about my inner purpose, I got to be honest, I kind of shit myself a little bit. I get scared. It's a big thing to state because it sounds egoic. It sounds too big. It sounds like, oh my God, if I say that, I, you know, do I sound like a, a megalomaniac? Because it's calling me to something that is way bigger than I personally can do. It calls me to, to create something that is far beyond me and an impact in the world that, like, it's overwhelming, but i got to step into it. 
That's your purpose. If it doesn't scare you, it's not your purpose. I recently did a, a podcast with Philip McKernan. Do you know Philip? Not personally, but I know what you mean. He said something like, "When you know, when it's similar to that, the pain lies near the purpose, but that most people know what they want to do. They're just afraid to step into it because if they know what they're supposed to do and they fail at that, then there's a real sense of scare. So he said, we're, we're dragged kicking and screaming into what we were actually meant to do. I fully agree with that. I mean, you know, again, it's far easier to do what you're comfortable doing. Like I said, if, you're, if it doesn't scare you, you're, not, you're probably not on that right path. And the only question I have for you about that is on your deathbed, if somebody comes over and whispers and said, hey, I always knew what it was. It was this. This is what you should have done. And you know that that's true. Can you die happy if you didn't do it? I doubt it. I want to die fulfilled. I want to die screeching into the end. Yeah. Saying, you know, at a high speed and screeching in the end going, I lived my purpose every day. I lived because part of my purpose is to live with courage. And so every day I'm challenged myself because every day I can feel like a coward. And I challenge myself and say, is that the coward's way? Because again, as I said at the beginning, when I talked about the fall, courage is subjective. Just because it looks courageous doesn't mean it is. If it's easy for me, it's not courageous. And if, you're, if other people are inspired by what you're doing, but you're not, you're not on purpose. Yeah, that's living someone else's version of what, what they think you should be. Well, no, not even that. That's not what I mean. That's a good point, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is this. So, for instance, I'm being interviewed right now by Bob Glazer. Fantastic, right? And Bob goes, well, you know, um, I see that you did this, and I can see that you're doing that. And, and Bob's very excited, and he's inspired by it. And if I'm going, yeah, <laughs> right? I'm no longer challenged. I'm not living a courageous life. It looks courageous to somebody else, but I'm not inspiring me. So we all try to be inspiring. But my question is, are you inspiring you? And part of inspiration in spiritus means, which is to be drunk on the divine until I'm in spiritus, until I'm to get to that state, I have to step off the edge. That's scary. Other people can say, oh, that's really courageous. But if it isn't for me, if I'm not inspiring me, I'm not on purpose. I'm sensing that your clients have nowhere to hide with you. This is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> this is the truth. Uh, it's funny. I, one of my clients this morning, he said, how do you get to that? And I go, isn't it true? And he went, damn, yes, that's it. Yeah, and I'm sure there's some people listening to this that you're, you're hitting some truth for them and it feels a little bit of uncomfortable. And I, I think they should, they should sit with that discomfort because they probably know why they're just not, not honoring it. And as you said, you know, people will go kicking and screaming. And if you want to kick and scream, that's fine. You can do that. I'll help you if you want to go kicking and screaming, but you still want to go, I'll help you. But if you want to lie to yourself, I'm not going to serve you. We're not going to work together. That's okay. My clients enter into a one-year contract with me. We work together. It is deep. It is powerful. It is transformational to them, to their families, and to their businesses. It's not unusual for them to have a 500% growth. Not at all. Measurable. It's not unusual for their lives to change dramatically. It's powerful. It's exciting work to do. But it is not in your comfort zone. And if you want to hide, great, that's good. You should keep doing that. If you're happy with that, fantastic. And by the way, I'm not talking down to you. I genuinely mean it. If you are genuinely happy, keep doing what you're doing. Because listen, when you've seen coaches and you've seen therapists and, you're real, and you go, mm, there's still something missing, that's the people who come and talk to me. They go, okay, I can't deny anymore. Denial is a river in Egypt. I'm done. Let's step in. It, Philip has a line that I've, you probably have used a similar one, but I, I've seen him use with people when, when he asks them something and they respond with, I don't know, he responds right away with, but if you did know, what would it be? And then yep. boom, they answer it. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's an NLP technique. Yeah. Neuro programming. Uh, mine is, I know you don't know, but if you did know, what would be the answer? And, and then it's amazing how fast the answer comes back from someone who said they, they didn't know. So it's not that they don't know, they just, maybe don't want to share it. They don't want to know. Yeah. Right. And so oftentimes what I'll say to that is, well, take a guess. And that lets the pressure off. Yeah. 
And every time they guess right. Yeah, it's just a process of, of self-actualization. Well, it's a process of permission. This yeah. is the thing. Like, you know, it's what you just said. We don't give ourselves permission to fully integrate, to fully step into our deep greatness. There is deep greatness born within each one of us. It never went away. Here's the thing I want you to know as you listen to this. You are already whole and complete. I'm not here to fix you because there's nothing to fix. You're not broken. The problem is you are a diamond. Think about it this way. You're a diamond, but oftentimes we get buried under a ton of crap. And then we think we're the crap. You're not the crap. My job, my clients will say this all the time. It's like I came to you to get, but what happened was I got rid of. I give you the tools to start peeling back the layers so that, that diamond can shine. And a diamond doesn't have a single facet. We think of diamonds, you know, we understand there's a multifacet, but we think about ourselves in that we got to show up as, well, this is my professional self. No, no, you're a diamond. And but by the way, this could sound egoic to people. It's not coming anywhere from ego at all. So I want you to know, in many ways, I'm the most enlightened person I know. But let me be clear. I'm also the biggest idiot I know. It depends on the day. It depends on the moment. And you can probably say the same about yourself. I'm a spectacular speaker, except when I'm not. This is the thing is we're human. We're multifaceted. And we only grow by examining the parts of ourselves that are less than spectacular. And we need to go in and polish that. But instead, we keep polishing the same surface over and over again because we get a round of applause for that. Well, Listen, you want to be authentic? You want to be an authentic leader? You want to be powerful? You want to be purpose-driven? Go look at the stuff you don't want to look at. Then you step into your magnificence. Then you can really serve in this world. Then you can make the kind of difference that you came here to make. Not kicking and screaming, but actually magnifying magnificence, not only in yourself, but in everybody that you serve. I'll just give people a few seconds to let that sink in. Powerful stuff. I'd love to switch to your book, uh, switch gears for a second, Fierce Loyalty. Loyalty is a commonly used word in business, but I know you've, you've added to the concept of with your book. Can you explain what fierce loyalty means and how it differs from our traditional understanding of, of loyalty in business? And I'd be happy if you, if you want to, you alluded to this before, but you know, talking about the workplace today and millennials and they're not loyal, it seems like everyone needs a, a redo on their understanding of this whole topic. Thank you for asking. Yeah, Fiercely Loyal is the name of the book, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. You can find it in all the bookstores, and you can find it through my website as well. But I wrote the book because what was evident to me in the work that I was doing is that there is a creeping crisis that has been going on actually for the last almost 10 years and is, and is going to go on for a lot longer as millennials are already the majority of the workforce. People don't know that. The, the largest member of the workforce are millennials. And we think of millennials as kids. They're not kids. The youngest of them are 19 years old, but the eldest of them are 39 years old. They're already in leadership positions. And if you want not loyalty, see loyalty in the way that we used to, that's why it's called fiercely loyal, because loyalty really was about paying people more, giving them a corner office. Well, guess what? Millennials don't care about a corner office. They already have one. It's called Starbucks. They don't care about those kinds of things. They don't care about the money. There is, Of course, they care about the money, but only to a point. We know that from the motivation of human beings. When we discover what it is, there is a set rate. It's called $72,000. Now, what people don't understand about that is that's a $72,000 lifestyle, meaning that if you live in, in Oklahoma or Idaho, $72,000 is different than if you live in Manhattan or if you live in Vancouver, Canada. Those are very different $72,000. You couldn't live in Vancouver on $72,000. You couldn't <laughs> live in Manhattan on $72,000, but you could probably live in Boise. So, you know, it's understanding the lifestyle of that as it's prorated across the nation that you live in. So once you reach that level, motivation around money goes out of the window. We don't really care anymore. So what millennials have as the top of their list is meaningful work. That's what keeps them loyal meaningful work. Well, what is meaningful work? Is that we as human beings are all driven to find our purpose. We don't call it that, but we do say we're looking for meaning. How do I know? 
Think of any conversation you have, you're out socially and somebody says something awkward or somebody says something stupid and you look at your friend or your friend looks at you and you go, why the hell did they say that? That's a looking for meaning. We are meaning driven beings. We're always looking for meaning. We're looking for meaning in our lives. We're looking for meaning around us. So naturally, millennials are saying, well, I want to do meaningful work. Now, so we want to work for purpose-driven organizations. That's if you keep them loyal. If you want to keep them fiercely loyal, you have to be a meaningful or purpose-driven organization. On top of that, millennials, another thing I absolutely love about them is they gave up this horse crap idea of the work-life balance. It doesn't exist. Yes. Ask any Gen Xer, ask any baby boomer. There's no such thing. We've all been trying to do it for 20 years. It doesn't exist. Millennials understand work-life blend. They understand that they're going to spend their time, more time, more waking hours around the people they work with than the people they live with. And so as a result, they understand that they actually want to have relationship with the people they're with. So a great company and a great leader will create a community. And your ping pong machine and your uh, foosball machine and your beanbags and your espresso machines are not going to do it. That's nice. Those things are great, but that's not what they care about. What they care about is having community, having autonomy having the opportunity for mastery while working for a purpose-driven organization. Millennials rock. They are fantastic. Embrace them. If you don't like them, that's okay. Sell your business or go <laughs> lock the door and go home because you're done. Can you talk about the misconception, which I think it is that, that millennials can't be held accountable? I think it is, it's more of a function of, yeah, if the goal of the organization is to make money for the founder and CEO, they're not super interested in that. But I, 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 accountability, I think, comes with purpose, right? I, I've not found that to be the case in, in our organization, that we have accountability standards that are true for, for everyone. And I, I, think I, would say, I think people confuse millennial as a behavior with millennial as, a, as an age range. So that right there, I think you nailed it, Bob. That's exactly it. So for me, one of the things is I'll say to people, you know, because as you know, I speak a lot about millennials and people say, but, you know, why should we listen to you? You're, you're a baby boomer. And I go, no, I'm not. And they go, yeah, you are. <laughs> the gray hair's a giveaway. And I go, uh-huh, but I'm not a baby boomer. And they go, what do you mean? I'm a millennial. Millennial is an age bracket, but it's also a mindset. I've been entrepreneurial since I was a kid. Well, guess what? Millennials are entrepreneurial. I don't like other people's rules because most people's rules don't make any sense. They're just rules for rules sake. Millennials don't like people's rules. If you tell them why, they're no problem. And this yeah. is the thing when it comes to accountability. They want to understand why. They are not good at being accountable to horse crap that you just decided. But if you say, here's why we're doing this, and this is how it ties into the purpose of why we're doing it, and this is how it supports our people and our team and our customers, they go, okay, no problem. I can be accountable to that. They actually love accountability. Every millennial I've ever worked with loves accountability, but they don't like accountability for no reason. It's like having a dad who says, do as I say, not as I do. Come on. So accountability for millennials is based on your willingness to be in integrity with the rules you set. If you can't live by your own purpose, if you can't live by your own values, why should they? Yeah, the, the problem, as I said before, I, and the, the, the inauthenticity is that in a world of freelance and, and Uber and all kinds of things that you can go do, it's not super exciting to go to work for someone who just wants you to make money for them, right? That goes into you might as well work by yourself or shut your business category, I think. Well, exactly. And this is the thing, right? So that's what I said about what I love about millennials is they're entrepreneurial. So, you know, in my generation, when people asked you what you wanted to do, that was, you know, for a career, that was a 20 to 40 year question. Millennials stay in careers, not jobs, pay attention here, in careers for four years. That's 10 times less, four years in a career. You're going to spend 1.5 to two times the annual salary of an individual on training and developing them. If they're leaving you within two years, you've lost your ROI. You've got to keep them for a career. That's what we do. That's what we do when we go into a company. We show you how to keep the people for a career. And we've had people who are staying seven, eight, and 10 years who are millennials 
guess why? We show the company how to change the career path of an individual so they actually can have a different career inside. I had a guy work for me for seven years, and while he worked for me, he had five careers in seven years. Hmm. Five completely different areas he was working in. He learned a ton. He loved the work. And guess what? Only I think he was three months in. I said, how are you liking it? And he, he said, love it. And I said, that's great. Here's what you need to know. And he said, what? I said, you're going to leave. And he goes, no, I'm not. And I said, yeah, yeah. No, honestly, I'm not leaving. I like it. And I said, no, you're going to leave eventually. And I'm okay with that. I said, because here's what I want you to know. He goes, what? I said, when you leave, I'm going to be your customer. I'm going to be your first customer. So you don't need to pretend or you don't need to hide and you don't need to sneak away. Let's be always up front. And we made that agreement. When he left, I was his first customer. I didn't have to pay him full time anymore. I'd already trained him. So I knew he could take care of the job. And he was great. I love millennials because millennials are baby boomers with balls. <laughs> that's, that's a good line. When we entered the workforce, we said, you know, I, I was a young baby boomer. The older baby boomers I heard saying, you know, they were the hippies were saying, I'm never going to work for the men. And they became the men. Millennials say, I don't have to work for the men. If I don't like you, I will leave. When I started a job at my, you know, when I started in the workforce, people would say, how was it? You go, ah, it was okay. You know, I'll give it six months. I'll give it a year. See how it is. Millennials go, I'll give it to lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and they do. They walk away at lunch and good for them because they get it that they have choice because worst comes to the worst. I've got 20 bucks. I can buy a URL and I can start a business. I can write enough code or even I can buy a Wix, a Wix site and I don't even have to write code and I can start a business. We're done. But let's briefly explore the other side of this for some of these millennials where we're in a, we're in a record economy. Uh, yeah. You know, lo lo loyalty is important and, and some of them can live at homes. Therefore, they're economically mobile and jump around jobs. Obviously, loyalty doesn't matter that much. And the short, you know, the long term doesn't that matter that much when everything is a little bit overheated, which we are right now in the labor market. But somehow these things have a way of evening themselves out. So how, let's look at the flip of that. Like how should these millennials or, or whoever, how should people behave on the, on the flip side of what you were saying, where you're saying, I was being honest with this employee about what was going to happen because obviously, you know, leaving your job every three months, it, it works while it's working, but that's also, that's not going to work probably in the long run if you intend on, on working for other businesses. Not if you intend working for other businesses, of course. Yeah. Here's the thing, right? So, you know, I, I was brought into a, a company, uh, not a company, a, a group actually in Vancouver. They asked me would I come speak because this was a, a group of kids who were just out of high school and they wanted me to come speak to them. And I said, uh, you know, and we talk about careers and talking about staying and whether you should do it on your own. And we went through all this whole thing. And I said, let me just tell you something. And this is, may not be popular with what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Your mom and dad are probably trying to send you off to college. And they go, yeah. And I said, my best advice is don't go. And like, you know, the people looking at me like, Ooh, don't go. And they, I said, you're going to go to college. You're going to spend 40 grand a year minimum. Yeah, that's just tuition. I mean, that's scratching the surface. Yeah, before anything else, right? Yeah. You're going to leave, you know, depending on what it is you're going to go do, you're going to leave with a, an enormous amount of debt that's going to be very hard to recover. So here's my best advice to you. If you feel like you know what it is you want to do, then that's great. Find out what it is you want to do and go do it. Do it by spending the money that you would spend on your tuition. But you have to have discipline around it and get your mom and dad or whoever it is and go and take an internship at a company where you can learn. Because if you spend two years there working for free, that money is well spent because at the end of that, when the idiot shows up who's done four years at college, four years at university, and the first three and a half of that are irrelevant, you will have two years of experience. You'll be way ahead of the game. But you will have to be committed and dedicated to that company. And you've got to dedicate and commit to that. So there is a level needed of commitment. And the only reason you should walk away is not because it's hard, but because you know, you realize this is not my path. Yeah, there's a phrase that someone told me that I've repeated as my advice when people ask me, 
who are in their 20s on job A versus B or otherwise. And someone said to me, look, learn in your 20s and earn in your 30s because you'll always be underpaid in your 20s. And so leaving a job for $3,000, you know, in your 20s is, is insignificant versus getting yourself in front of the right. You know, when you look at LinkedIn and Jeff Weiner and some all these leaders and who they all worked for uh, in their 20s, it, w- it was all these really successful people. So I, I think that's the flip side of it a little bit is, right, if you're not learning, then move on. But if it's a great situation, don't be penny wise, pound foolish. No. And this is the thing all the time that people forget. Robert Kiyosaki's talked about this in Rich Dad Poor Dad a hundred years ago, you know, and he talked about, you know, there's only one reason to have a job. That's to get an education. He said that in that book all that time ago. The only reason to get a job is to get an education. Go to the job and learn. If you're not learning, don't leave. Go and talk to somebody and tell them, I want to learn. Because if they're an older generation, they may not understand that. They may think you're because you're looking to just get good at it. They also don't understand that millennials learn much faster. Millennial is the screen time generation. The screen time generation learn in a few hours what we took months to learn. Not because they're smarter, not because we were dumber, but because the ability to learn, the accessibility to learning platforms is much easier. I don't fix anything. I'm not the guy who fixes stuff in the house. My wife does that. My wife's the handyman. But here's the thing. My wife learns all that by going on YouTube. Yeah. She goes on YouTube. And you know that's the same thing I would have called a guy in to come do who would have done a five-year technical college training. She's doing it. Now, is yeah. she doing it as well? Probably not, but she can good do enough. it. Yeah. yeah, good enough. So this is the thing. You don't want to place yourself in a learning environment. Now, that being said, we just talked about millennials, but here's the deal. If you're 50 years old and you're in the workforce and you're not learning, get another job. Find something else because if you're not learning, you're just preparing for the graveyard. If you're not growing, you're dying. It's the law of nature. It's the law of human beings. All right. Last question for you, because I know I, we could go on forever, but what's a personal <laughs> or professional mistake that you've learned the most from? Oh, geez. Uh, only had a couple of those. <laughs> As in, more than I could possibly imagine. Uh, mistake, there's lots, but one of them has, has been that I've usually been ahead of my time, meaning there's something I'm doing, i.e. I had an online community nine years ago. And it died a death because <laughs> nobody knew what the hell it was. Nobody knew what to do with it. And so I spent a lot of money and a lot of time, a lot of energy, and it went down the toilet. What I had to learn from that was how to have a great idea and then go research how I can make it happen and how I can educate people around it if I'm going to be ahead of the time. So you know, this is the thing is to just be at the front edge of that wave, but not too far ahead of it. So that was one. But I would say the number one thing that I've learned as I've gotten older, that was a huge mistake I made, which is definitely a generational one, was this horse shit about being a lone ranger, that I thought I had to do it all alone. Mm. I was terrible at asking for help. And in 1989, I'd moved to Vancouver, Canada. I was living here. I'd lived here a year. I had a couple of friends who kept seeing, talking to me about this guy who was a speaker. They thought I should go see. And I was like, why? And they go, because he says a lot of the stuff you say, he actually doesn't, but <laughs> certainly not what I say now. But for them, it was, you know, it was very similar, right? For yeah. them, that was fine. So I decided that I would go with them and to see this speaker who was going to be speaking in Seattle. And I got down there. And I'm in this room with about 200 other people, very small event today, um, about 200 other people. And the speaker at the end says, if you want to stay behind and talk to me, you can do that. And people lined up to speak to this person. I made sure I was last. I wanted to be last. I didn't want to feel the pressure of anybody behind me. I wanted to be able to have a conversation with this person, but I knew they'd be tired. I know what it's like, right? Now, I... I had already been speaking for five years, so I'd already been speaking for a while, and I had some level of success. And I stood in front of this person, and the person said to me, how did you enjoy it? I said, it was amazing. You were superb. And he, he looks at me and says, thank you. And he said, how do you feel? And I said, pissed off. <laughs> so he said, you said it was great, you thought I was great, and you feel pissed off? 
And I could see the puzzled look on his face. And he said, why are you pissed off? I said, oh, well, you made $11 million last year, Mr. Robbins, Tony. <laughs> I said, you made $11 million last year, which would be a terrible year for Tony today. You made 11, year, $11 million last year, and I'm standing here in a secondhand jacket, and I'm at least as good as you are. We're different, but at least as good as you are. And Tony smiled at me, was very gracious, and said, who's on your team? And I said, I haven't played soccer since I left the UK. And he says, that's not the team I mean. I said, I don't understand. And I didn't. I wasn't goofing around. I didn't. And he said, you see that brochure you're holding? I said, yeah. He said, do you think I printed it? And I go, no, a printer. He goes, do you think I designed it? I said, maybe. He goes, no, I didn't. He goes, did I put the seats out? I said, probably not. He said, did I meet you at the door and take your ticket? I said, no. He goes, exactly. I have a team for all those things. Who's on your team? It only took me about eight years to learn that lesson. <laughs> Remember, nice guy, slow learner. Once I realized I have to have a team and I have to trust my team to do what they do best. I can override if I think it's in, out of integrity, but I have to trust that they know what they're doing. And many leaders fail because they hire people who are smarter than them and then dumb them down. Powerful words. Hopefully, everyone listening can accelerate that learning from eight years to maybe less than an hour. Well, Dove, thank you for sharing your story with us. You clearly uh, have demonstrated why you are such a sought-after coach. Practice what you preach and, and really demonstrate your knowledge of authenticity and leadership. How can people get a hold of you? Thank you so much for asking. I sincerely appreciate it. You can find me and all the access to all the resources we have, uh, ebooks, podcasts, videos, articles, etc., at fullmontyleadership.com. Fullmontyleadership.com. There you can find out about my courses that I offer. You can find out about my books and all those kinds of things. But here's the thing before we go any further, I want to say something, if I may, and that's this. As you're listening to this, I, you know, I, I looked at all the guest lists that. That, uh, that Bob brings onto the show, you've got some phenomenal guests. And time after time, this man is going out there to find exceptional guests for you to listen to, for you to learn from. We get paid a significant amount of money per hour, and we're doing this for free. And more importantly, you should understand that Bob gives hours after hour after hour to find these great guests for you, to come on and do this show for you. It's important that you let him know that this is valuable. So it's important that you go on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's also important that you write to him and let him know what you've got out of the episode. I'm going to give you my personal email. It's dovdov at dovbaron.com, dov at dovbaron.com. I want you to write to Bob and I want you to write to me and tell us what you got out of this show because information's worth the hole in the donut. Transformation is only from what you apply. That happens. Transformation comes from application. Write to us. Tell us what you got out of it, what you're going to do with it. And if there's a way I can help you, if there's a way I can be of service to you, that's why I'm on the planet. You can write to me. If I can help you personally or with your company or bring me in as a speaker, I can do that too. But I do want to hear from you and I do want you to let Bob know why this is important to you and let it and like I said share the show with everybody you know all right well you took my job so <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that I did not did not pay for that um but uh, no, uh <laughs> Dove likes the surprise well thank you everyone for joining us today really appreciate Dove and your time and uh till next time keep elevating This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. 
Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.